Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumter, and today we're going to be talking with Martha Bird again. Martha is the anthropologist inside of ADP and, and our man in Havana for so many things. So, Martha, how are you? I'm very well, John. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, it's, uh, it, it seems like it's been a while, but every time we get together, I'm always looking forward to, to our conversation. I bet I'm the only person who's called you our man in Havana ever. I think I'm the only person that's, you're the only person that's ever referred to me in that way. So I see we've already started something very unique here. There you go. So take a moment and introduce yourself so that that the people who haven't listened to one of our conversations remember who you are. Sure. Um, I'm Martha Bird, and as John said, I'm an anthropologist. I work uh, inside ADP. Um, I... I spend a lot of time um, with people trying to understand how they make meaning with the digital tools that we build um, and, and at an even higher level, really trying to get a sense of the patterns that I'm seeing outside in the world and how some of those patterns, cultural patterns actually um, have implications for the things that, that we're creating. So I get to apply academic anthropology uh, in an in industry setting, uh, and I think personally it's, it's really one of the most exciting um, spaces to be in because a lot of the work that I do actually um, gets to bear fruit uh, in the real world. It's a, it's a practical affair, and those are the kinds of things that I like. So, so, so tell me the story. I can't imagine that, that sort of sitting in the sandbox in, in kindergarten – you looked up at the sky and said, ah, I'm going to be an anthropologist when I grow up, and then I'm going to do it inside of a very large company. So, well, so, I'm, I'm, so yeah. Yeah, so I was going to say, I'm, I'm glad that it didn't actually um, evolve in quite that way. So, um I was playing in the sandbox, I'm sure, and I remember planting turtle eggs and hoping something would come of them. Um, but I moved on from there, and um, you know, I ran a farm for, for many, many years um, as an adult. It was a family farm in New Hampshire. And I had uh, winter times kind of off because there wasn't really much going on in the field. So uh, it seemed to me I should be keeping myself a little busier on other things, and I... Uh, entered into a, a art history program in um, for graduate work. I actually have an undergraduate degree in philosophy and art history. I think we've discussed that, and we, we share some common interests there in terms of the philosophy part. Uh, and then I, um, you know, I, I realized that art history really wasn't the direction I thought I would want to take, and I kind of shopped myself around and was fortunate enough to be picked up um, by Boston University, uh, and they very generously provided me many years of uh, doctoral research um, time and finances, and then ultimately after about 10 years, they said, okay, it's time for Martha to go, and uh, I left with a PhD in cultural anthropology, which at that time, um, I realized there were lots of anthropologists actually working in industry. Uh, and I moved from New Hampshire to uh, San Francisco, where I sort of began my, um, you know, the last 20 years working uh, with tech companies and trying to understand um, customers 
um, but more really than understanding customers, just really trying to, um, you know, honor the reality of everyday people. And that brought me to lots of interesting um, geographies where I was able to apply what I knew. What a, what a great adventure. What a, what a tremendous adventure. I think most careers are kind of like that. Not all. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people, some mm-hmm. people actually do the same thing their whole lives, but, but we don't hear enough about, about stories like yours, and, and it's my sense that they're the norm. So now you're busy anthropologizing inside of ADP, and the world blows up. Around Valentine's mm-hmm. Day this year, all of history came to a grinding halt and we got into this new thing that we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. um, how did that change your work? Yeah, it, you know, it's true that, um, that being an anthropologist really implies like collaborating directly with people, you know, people both, both near and far, mm-hmm. so traveling. And a key tenant really of the application of anthropology is showing up in the places where people make their meaning. So it's spending time with them you know, as they go about their lives, you know, observing their interactions with people and all the stuff of their daily life. Um, Of course, listening actively um, for what they they hold valuable and what they believe and then how they embody these beliefs and the kind of, is kind of the bread and butter of of much of what we do. So yeah, my work in this particular respect has changed, I think. But one thing that most anthropologists learn in the course of their, you know, academic and professional careers is to, uh, to adapt and pivot as necessary. So, you know, even as I'm working at home, it's clear that there are many emerging patterns to observe, especially in, in how, how those of us working from home are getting on with it. Of course, how one works from home, like everything else, and this is a point I always like to make, John, is that it's really heavily con- context-dependent. So, you know, a small apartment in, in the city, uh, young children in need of attention, older children increasingly bored, you, whether you have strong or weak Wi-Fi, poor bra- broadband, no broadband, You've got great digital tools or just just okay workarounds. All these factors and many others besides, I think, influence the sort of heterogeneous uh, realities of how work is happening. I I, I love the phrase "showing up where people make their meaning." Mm. That's 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 awesome. That's awesome. So so I'm I'm going to wander down that for a little bit. What the world sure. do you mean? Where where people make their meaning? That's that's, that, that's a great turn of a phrase. Unpack that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I think when we, when we think about people doing stuff, um, for instance, uh, think about, um, you know, a, 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 a crew on a, on a film production um, set. You know, we think about the end product an awful lot. Uh, and, and, and in a sense, we don't really think about it. So that's, that's part of the point as well. I mean, things happen, we, and then the, the, the people like ourselves watch it on TV, and we think, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I, I, you know, it creates a certain sentiment or whatever. But then there's all this other stuff that goes on in order for that to be delivered to us. There's a lot of other places that meaning um, happens in order for that to come um, onto um, our screen. So what does that mean? It means really understanding how different crews work together, uh, how they speak to one another, because there's a whole language there that's used um, across these different crews, Um, you know, the tools that they're using to get things done, which is an entirely different meaning system than the one that we um, consume at the end. And so, 
for me, you know, being in the places where people make meaning is actually being in the how this stuff actually happens. Um, not in the end result, but but what do all those things look like? So in in our business, um, you know, building um, digital tools for HR, uh, we really have to spend time, you know, really understanding how practitioners make meaning. How do what words do they use when they're discussing certain certain things? Because they're probably not the same that that well I would use and, and perhaps you would use, but they have their own language, they have their own um, processes, they have their own way of of, you know, uh, working around challenges. And so we want to understand those things um, from their perspective in order to, you know, ensure that we're taking that into account as we build, um, you know, build digital tools for them. So it's really about, you know, it's at, we, we spoke before the show went on about onions. It's really about peeling back the onion um, and, and, and sort of getting to the core of things before just sort of starting at the surface. So it's really about um, like a deep, a deep and rich interpretation of how people, um, you know, get together and agree what's going to be normative and what's not going to be normative. And then, of course, you add the dimension of, of uh, different cultures. And, of course, all those things um, may happen differently. I love it. I love it. I think, I think I might be tempted to say that you could use the the idea of value creation interchangeably with uh, meaning creation. But I think the idea of meaning creation gives it sort of uh, more rea- more reality. Um, mm. the, um, so, 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 I, so I really like that, and I really like the way that you simply articulate the difference between what we do and what the people who consume what we do experience. Right, it's mm-hmm. easy. It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget that those two things are so different. So, so, so moving on. ADP moved sixty thousand people from centralized to remote work. What was that like? Well, it's interesting that you 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 ask that question because I think it ties into what we've just discussed. And so, you know, I, I personally found um, the move amazingly smooth, maybe even unremarkable in a sense. So it's like one day I'm in the office and the next day I'm working at home, you know. And so when something is so easy for me, I tend to ask myself, if it was easy for me, then who was it difficult for? Or at the very least, who put in the effort to afford me such ease? Um, you know, I believe most of us can use this exercise productively, really, to reflect on a whole range of goods and services uh, we enjoy because others have done the heavy lifting, so to speak. You know, in any event, I'm pretty certain that lots of physical and technical and thought, thoughtful shadow work went into making the move of ADP's, you know, 58,000-plus workforce from, you know, centralized offices around the globe to a remote work reality relatively easy for the vast majority of, um, of ADP associates. So now, that we're, so now that we are, you know, discussing this, it strikes me that, you know, hearing these stories, the stories of the, of the people that created these for the rest of us, um, hearing these and maybe understanding these better would be really a super um, fascinating, um, you know, direction um, to put my attention toward. I'd imagine that, you know, people on the facilities teams, those in associate technical support, you know, those in charge of employee health and safety, the HR department for sure, those responsible for employee communications and, and, and so many others, um, you know, would have some stories um, to tell that I'd personally like to hear. 
Um, and I really thank, I thank you for the question because I think it has raised some interesting questions in my own mind and, and things that I haven't probably given sufficient thought to. But uh, I'm, I think that uh, well, I, like a lot of people, may take for granted. One of the things that, that I'm thinking about heavily right now is uh, maybe a story is good to describe it. Uh, we live in a place where the wildfires come every year, and last year they got really close. The, uh, the neighbor's yard burned, and um, we were evacuated for two weeks. And mm-hmm. so we had, we had three hours' notice. We jumped in the car with whatever we could figure out to take and got out of there so that we didn't die. Um, mm-hmm. And then we spent the next several weeks waiting for the all-clear signal so that we could mm-hmm. come home. Um, and and while we were evacuated, we had a life, and the life had work inside of it. We had we had we had lots of things that looked like normal, but it was really, really, really very temporary and very thin as a reality. Um, mm-hmm. And but as we got used to it, it seemed more and more normal. Um, and so, so this is the long way of getting to. We're in this new mode, and it's starting to seem normal. But it seems to me that there are um, some significant things missing from our experience that we aren't really paying attention to yet, because we're still all waiting for the all clear signal so that we can go back to normal. Mm, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think thinking about. Uh, you know something that I've I've been given uh, a lot of um, thought to too, and it, it sort of reminds me, you know, that um, we 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 idealize first of all. I think this notion of normal. Um, so you know, I think an awful lot about the fact that that my normal is 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 wholly different, or at least significantly different than you know a lot of people's normal, um, and and what might be new to me. Uh, isn't actually new to somebody else. So I think, you know, I like to think of, um, you know, the way I frame it for myself is around this notion of like emerging realities, right? So it hasn't been set yet. Now, I think you raise the interesting point that there's this sort of like horizon line and we're waiting to kind of return to that, this this point that we're all looking upon. Um, and I think really what's happening is that as, as we're in this um, evacuation, um, that you describe, um, we'd be well to sort of take time to reflect on perhaps the different horizon line that we're now um, headed towards instead of thinking that we're going back home as, it, as, as the home that we left. So I think that's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting pause for thought. And, you know, I, you know, it's sort of always in the back of my mind to, to, to think about that. Because I think there's a lot of productive things that can happen during that um, time away, uh, the one that you described when you went away for a couple of weeks and waiting for the let's all go back to normal, back to our house. Um, you know, things change. Um, and whether we, um, you know, acknowledge it consciously or not, it does happen. And I think that the more that we can be intentional in terms of thinking about our lives and our, our context and our place in the world, I think the better off. You know, we we are. Yeah. So so still, this is now we're nine months later. Every time I smell smoke in the air, I start mm-hmm. to pack. Um, mm-hmm. Right, and and so and so there's this sort of 
post-traumatic memory that 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 you develop after times like this. But there are other things. I don't know if you've run across Ben Waver yet. He's the co-founder and president over at Humanize in Boston, and they measure organic network behavior in organizations. Um, mm-hmm. And um, he's th- these numbers are not going to be perfectly precise, but but Ben's view is something like a normal organization. Individual people, on average, have six close ties. They're people you spend an hour a week with, and around 30 secondary relationships who are 15 minutes or less per week. Um, mm-hmm. And and there's a subset idea which is that which is more mine than his, I think, which is that the people who spend time together think that they're the people who create meaning, but it's those. Um, second-order relationships that you don't spend much time in where the real value is created in in an organization. So now you've got, post-pandemic, you've got 25% more close ties and 75% fewer loose ties. Um, uh, Do you see similar things? And and do you get this, this idea that that maybe the reality is really thin and we're not doing all of the value creation that we think we're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's uh, those are interesting um, data points, and I'm not familiar with that work, but um, but I think it, it definitely definitely raises some interesting um, thoughts. So, you know, on the surface of it, I can see how how this actually makes sense. You know, practically speaking, it's a lot of additional effort. You know, to set up a video conference for fifteen uh, for a fifteen minute call. You know, for all of those sort of uh, secondary relationships you described. And those might, you know, obviously be conducted in person, you know, um, sort of serendipitously you cross someone's path or, or you know, you get to, you know, step aside for a moment and have this um, sort of, you know, brief conversation. You know, an alternative, you really, you, you need to collaborate and share and brainstorm. You're, you're likely to spend more than 15 minutes doing so. So in that case, your close ties, you know, those that you would have historically spent that longer period of time with are going to get more um, of your screen time. Um, it's interesting because as a person, I tend to cultivate close ties as a general practice um, and it have many more than I think six close ties that, that you cited. So I, I might not be the best proxy for this. Uh, however, um, you know, think about all the in-person meetings many of us have found ourselves in throughout the workday. Sometimes the questions and the discussions raised in these meetings might be more productively addressed through a team chat or a company-wide productivity and sharing platform. So let's face it, some people really like to talk, and in those instances, in-person meetings go beyond what might be truly necessary. So, you know, I think somehow this sort of practical uh, imposition of, of technology that, we're, that many of us who are working from home are facing um, is a sorting mechanism for um, the priority of, of, of value creation. So... But I do agree with you, and I think you you um, you know you cast an interesting lens on the on the uh, data, which is a lot of meeting happens sort of in the margins, uh, in the corners, um, in those sort of 15-minute um, secondary tie um, interactions, uh, and that is something that I think isn't you know that is missed um, when we're um, working in the way that we're working. So uh, I I think that's something definitely worth worth considering. And I also think that maybe part of, you know, what I hear some things about, which is like, you know, this sort of hybridized return to work. So, 
you know, um, working from home a majority of the time and then maybe going into an office location once every few weeks. Uh, and, and, and for those who are contemplating this, they're really thinking about the office time as the time for the sort of interpersonal relating for probably, you know, to sort of re-renew um, the possibility of the serendipitous, you know, get-togethers and these sort of, you know, you know, sidebar conversations, which I agree with you, I think are um, hugely valuable. Yeah, the, the, the reason that I, that I started thinking about that is I've been looking at job hunting again. Um, I, I've studied that over the years, and there's never been a situation like we're in and about to be in uh, for job mm-hmm. hunters. And the general wisdom about job hunting is that you never get your job, your next job from your close ties. You mm-hmm. always get mm-hmm. your job from your second or third order ties. And so that suggests to me that there's a, um, a, a value or meaning creation mechanism that isn't well understood because the people who are at the center um, are also the people who ask the questions about how value is created. You can't form a committee of loose ties. <laughs> you mm-hmm. have to. You yeah. have to. You have to. You have to form a committee of close ties, and so, so um, it's really hard to see into the glue that holds organizations together. Um, mm-hmm. is, is what I'm. What I'm. What I'm discovering. Um, so, yeah. so you have a you have a first first row seat at a change in organizations. What do you see as the differences? Before yeah. And after. Yeah. Um, I guess um, for me, it's like um, it's really about. I think there's a, a a deeper commitment to to like thinking of your um, colleagues more on a human level. So, so I can only speak for my own, um, you know, myself and and my own organization, but, you know, I think there's more um, awareness um, and in in a sense it's forced awareness, um, you know, that, that your colleagues actually are people with actual lives that they're leading. So they live in a place, they have certain things hanging on their wall. They have, you know, they might have kids or pets or, um, parents around. Um, I think there's a there's a kind of um, humanizing awareness that's going on, which I personally think is um, super um, valuable for for all of us. And I think, um, you know, and I think alternatively, I think there has to be a, um, you know, a a concern for those people who are not um, keen on you know showing up on video or. Um, sharing how they're feeling, um, and you know that's where I think uh, a manager has to to really um, be a manager, uh, a, a leader, and and try to reach out for those folks and see how they're getting on. Got it, got it. So so sort of getting to the end of this, the, one of my big questions these days is, I've watched so many companies throw themselves headfirst into the um, mechanics of survival and the mechanics mm-hmm. of supporting survival that that 
it's like everybody left their post and and went to went to go join the firefight and and I wonder if um if you're seeing people either um losing their way because they're so busy fighting the fire or if there are elements of business continuity that you see changing because mm-hmm. our attention is diverted from the mission um mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah, I think? like I like I like this um I like this um the point that you make up quite a lot. I, to me I kind of think of it as like the forest and the trees conundrum, so I may be looking at it slightly differently. But, you know, for me, look, what I'm understanding is is that, you know, people are rushing to fix or patch along things, you know, it could be tools, procedures, policies without actually first stepping back and asking, why are we fixing this in the first place? You know, or taking pause to reflect on the history of the of the thing. Um, and if it even is going to be relevant going forward, you know, I, you know, if I if I think of a metaphor, it's kind of like ensuring you paid for your newspaper home delivery when online is the dominant source of news. Um, so I think we spend a great deal of time running on wheels without really stopping to ask, why are we doing it? Um, so in this sense, you know, I, I guess if I were to offer some practical advice, I'd say, you know, ask why. You know, and ask it again and again. I mean, this technique was developed to get to the root cause of, of issues instead of really fixating, you know, on the most obvious ones. And, and the most obvious ones are, are the ones that we generally, I think, take for granted. It reminds me, actually, of a story of the elevator. And I don't think I shared this with you before, but I really love it, which is that, you know, the elevator in a, in a high-rise apartment building was really slow. So the tenants were complaining you know, that it was too slow and, and then, you know, complaining to the land the landlords, you know, and then the landlords thought, okay, we've got to fix this slow elevator because, you know, it's really um, going to cause us trouble down, down the line. So they came up with a whole bunch of ideas, like let's retrofit a new one or let's increase the carry, carrying capacity of the old one. And no one really stopped to ask why, uh, why was the elevator slow? You know, or more to the point, what about the experience of riding the elevator made tenants feel like it was slow? Or was it even the ride itself? And it turns out that it was really about the waiting and not so much the, the movement up and down. It was like people felt that they had to wait too long for the elevator. And one of the solutions that was, uh, I think, ultimately um, uh, adopted was create some sort of um, distraction entertainment mechanism um, that could help people uh, lose track of the time of waiting. So then the elevator didn't become too slow. So I think what happens is, you know, we, we often react to things and when we really should be reflecting on them. You know, and while I think it's difficult to take pause, I believe it's really extremely important, you know, now more than ever to really, to really ask why. That's awesome. That's awesome. So last question. Um, it's, a, it's an inflection point. Um, and, and so I'm curious about the questions that are entertaining you and, um, what you think you're going to be thinking about in 90 days. Yeah, you know, I'm actually um, extremely interested um, by the semantics of terms that we're hearing a lot, like virtual, remote, distributed, and working from home. Because I think on the surface of it, um, they seem to describe the same thing, but I suspect they really are, in fact, bearers of really distinct cultural imaginations with very, you know, really varied material and technical implications. So I'm actually looking forward to unpacking some of that nuance um, because uh-huh. I think when someone says, I work virtually, 
they may not be saying the same thing as the person who says, I work from home. I think there are different expectations uh, and different sorts of ways of doing things that are implied in, in those two things. I'm, I'm just very interested to try to get a bit more, um, you know, critical about, you know, apply more critical thinking to terms that I think we generally just take for granted as interchangeable. So, so as you start to make progress, we should have another conversation. As usual, mm. this was this was delightful and engaging, and I'd love to hear what you're unpacking. Um, so, Thank thanks for doing this. Would you would you take a moment reintroduce yourself and tell people how they might get a hold of you? Sure. Um, so, I'm Martha Bird, and, and I'm an anthropologist working at ADP, and I can be found on LinkedIn where I welcome making connections with, with a broad um, professional community. So don't be afraid to um, connect with me. Thanks so much, Martha. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Martha Bird, who is the amazing business anthropologist working in ADP's Roseland Innovation Lab. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks again, Martha, and we will see you back here same time next week. Bye-bye now. 